good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at the LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school for a talk this evening by Ben Wildavsky on the topic, The Great Brain Race, Rise of the Global Education Marketplace. At this point, I should hold up my copy of the book, uh, which I did, in fact, read over the summer. I was saying to Ben, but I, I lent it to the director of the school, who's gone off to the United States, and I think must be reading it himself. Now is the time, please, to make sure you've got your mobile phones turned off. Uh, this is a particularly good time, of course, to have Ben here at the LSE talking about the great brain race. I've actually spent my days subbing for Howard Davis, the director of the school, at meetings of the Russell Group and then of Hefke, where we were addressed by David Willits, the Secretary of State. And, of course, in this country, we're about to see a very profound change in the way in which higher education is funded and organized. We were just speaking about this a minute or two ago. And of course, any university in the UK, globally, certainly a university like this one, has uh, major concerns at the moment, not just about domestic funding issues, but how, of course, we stack up against universities elsewhere, not just in the United States, but increasingly in Australia, India, China, and in the Gulf. So I think the talk tonight uh, by Ben, uh, picking up on his recently published book, will be a particularly interesting and apposite one. Uh, ben Wildavsky is a senior fellow in research and policy at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, uh, which he joined after, I think, an 18-year career as a writer and editor, specializing in education and public policy. Uh, towards the end of that career, Ben was education editor of US News and World Report, uh, where he was also the lead editor of America's Best Colleges and America's Best Graduate Schools. And in those roles, he oversaw several award-winning stories. Uh, in addition, Ben has been budget, tax, and trade correspondent for the National Journal, higher, a higher education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, grew up in Oakland, California, um, an executive editor of the public interest. Uh, his articles and reviews have also appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New Republic, the Christian Science Monitor, the Weekly Standard Commentary, and a whole host of other publications. He was also the lead author of the US News Ultimate Guide to Becoming a Teacher. Uh, ben graduated from Yale University, a media fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in 2004, 2005, and 2006. And currently, I think he is a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. So we're very pleased that you're here tonight at London School of Economics, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stuart, for that kind introduction. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. I, I may wander away from these mics, so please don't hesitate to tell me if I need to speak up. Um, I, I wish I could say that I had planned to be here this week uh, when there's, of course, uh, an intense debate about whether a British university... Sure, sure, I'll take this. Sorry. Excuse me one second. All right, that's great. Yeah, that's fine. There's an intense debate going on, of course, about whether uh, British universities can remain globally competitive in the face of the severe budget cuts 
that have, that have been announced and, of course, you know, are likely to be implemented in, in, in some form uh, in the not-too-distant future. Now, tonight, I, I don't plan to go into all the details of this debate, but um, I do intend to try to provide some global context and to try to, uh, at least toward the end of my remarks, touch on, you know, touch on uh, my thoughts about what's happening here right now. Now, I asked uh, Stuart um, <coughs> what, I, what I could do to grab the attention of a sophisticated intellectual audience, the sort of audience one gets in, in London, and particularly at a place like LSE. And he suggested that I really couldn't miss uh, if I began with pictures of cute animals. So I wanted to show you some monkeys that I came across a couple of years ago when I was visiting Southeast India. And uh, I, this was actually taken from the balcony of the, the hotel room where I was staying, the guest house. I, I didn't imagine I'd be showing it someplace like this. I actually took it for my kids so I could give them a little sense of what I was seeing. And uh, as you can see, they're pretty adorable little creatures. But it turns out these monkeys have a dark side. I found out after I'd been there about a day that if you leave your room and you go out and you leave your windows open, they'll come inside and they'll trash the place. And things aren't what they seem in other ways as well. Uh, to my Western eyes, this looks like a pretty sleepy, out-of-the-way campus. Uh, you not only have monkeys running around, you have deer everywhere, you have these beautiful banyan trees. But it turns out that this is the campus of the Indian Institute of Technology in Madras which is an elite engineering school, part of a group of institutions uh, across the country that are often called the MIT of India. And, <coughs> excuse me, this, uh, this campus, you know, despite looking a little bit sleepy and, as I said, out of the way, it's very much a part of the new global networks of knowledge and talent mobility that characterize the global higher education marketplace that I'll be talking about this evening. This is a place where you go to visit the director, uh, this gentleman, M.S. Anand, uh, as I often do on my first day at a campus. You go to pay your respects. And uh, in this corner of India, he's just back from Davos, where he was talking to, uh, he was participating in a, in a higher education group headed by Rick Levin, the president of Yale. This is a campus where <coughs> students uh, go to sign up for interviews at Google and McKinsey. Uh, it's a campus where you see recruiting posters uh, offering graduate fellowships at KAUST, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, which is a brand new graduate level institution in Saudi Arabia that just opened a year or so ago. And KAUST, of course, is trying to seek the best and brightest students from all over the world. And naturally, they, they come to recruit at the IIT. And as I was working on, on my book, On the Great Brain Race, I came across uh, fascinating and unexpected things like this all over the world. And when I first started, it's not at all what I had in mind. I thought that I was going to do a book that would be a series of profiles of the, the best universities in the world. And I realized after a couple of months of, of working on this that I was missing a much more interesting story, which is the gradual shaking up of the old order of elite universities as we enter an era of very intense global competition. And tonight, I'm going to try to give you just a taste of what I discovered. Uh, I'm going to focus on three of the main themes that I discuss in the book. The, the first is the extent to which we're seeing academic mobility on a scale that's never been witnessed in history. The second is the rise of global college rankings. And the third is the quest everywhere, uh, from China to South Korea to Saudi Arabia, to create great world-class universities. And in each of these cases, I'm going to try to explain all the intriguing things that are happening and how they've combined to make higher education globalization 
reached further and spread more quickly than ever before. I'm also going to discuss in each case how some people are wondering whether certain aspects of this new global university marketplace might represent a threat. But for each of these big trends, I'm going to tell you why we don't need to worry, why this transformation, uh, this global marketplace, is a huge opportunity for nurturing talent, for expanding meritocracy, and for fostering innovation, both in the West and in the rest of the world. Now, let me begin by talking a little bit about mobility. Uh, we're seeing mobility in a number of different forms. Uh, the first, and I think uh, the biggest, uh, you could say, is mobility of students. Uh, there's always been student mobility, uh, going back to the first Western universities in the Middle Ages in, in Bologna and Paris and Oxford. You have this medieval tradition of the wandering scholar. And on one level or another, that continued for centuries. But in recent years, we've seen a massive number of students traveling outside their home country, uh, not just for short-term you know, study abroad courses, you know, uh, to get a better wardrobe or to meet French girls. I mean, these are students who go abroad uh, for a year or more and are often trying to get an academic credential. And there are now three million of these students around the world, and that's a 57% increase in just a decade or so. And that figure is projected to increase to 8 million students by 2025, so coming close to tripling. Uh, these are really extraordinary numbers, and it's probably not surprising that recruiting of these students is very fierce. Uh, if you look at the PhD level in the sciences in particular, and uh, postdoctoral students as well, uh, these students are really the backbone of the global research enterprise. And everybody wants them, the top students can write their own ticket. Undergraduates, of course, are also valued. Uh, they bring a lot of tuition revenues, as you, as you know, in this country, uh, as so-called full-pay students in most cases. I think it's very easy to be cynical about that, but I think that the most enlightened policymakers and university leaders understand that these students aren't just a source of, of revenues and fees. They're a source of brain power and human capital and talent. And particularly those students who stay can really add a lot to a country, and those who go back home, I think, can also... Uh, create lasting ties. The motivation, you know, the, the deep interest that many countries have in attracting these kinds of students has led to somewhat unconventional recruiting tactics. Uh, one of my favorites took place a few years ago in New Zealand, where uh, the, uh, the Higher Education Promotion Agency put together a viral video uh, trying to get students from the Asian market to come to New Zealand. And this is just a still from the video. Uh, as you can see, it's a, a couple in one corner of the hot tub smooching and then the camera pulls back and you see the parents on the other side looking rather disapproving. And the caption, of course, is get further away from your parents. And what's remarkable about this, you know, is if you look at the 10-year recruiting trends, it appears to have been remarkably successful. Because that second line there is New Zealand's 999% increase. So we know that sex sells and we know that there are many motivations for student mobility. But that's not all. We're also seeing tremendous mobility of research. And that takes several forms. In the last 20 years, we've seen more than a doubling of uh, research collaborations, author, articles co-authored across national boundaries with authors from different countries. We see interesting collaborations. Uh, Yale University has a, a partnership with a number of Chinese universities where each sort of uses its comparative advantage. So Yale, of course, has high-level scientific expertise. Some of these universities aspire to greatness, but they're not there yet. They have very massive laboratory facilities. They have very highly trained techs. And it's sort of a win-win situation because some of the Yale professors, who I think are mostly overseas Chinese, go back to China and work on these research partnerships. So that's another form of research mobility. And <coughs> you also have um, some interesting evidence that 
well over half the highly cited researchers in countries like Canada, Italy, Switzerland, Australia have spent some time outside their home countries. Now, uh, Stuart, of course, uh, I know gave a lecture in the last couple of years on the proper uses of social science, so I'm not sure whether one can say that's causation or correlation, but we certainly know that the top people are very globally mobile um, in the research community. Uh, just one final example here of mobile research. I spoke to the American Chemical Society a few weeks ago back in the Washington, D.C. area where I live, and they've had a, a massive increase just in the past decade in the percentage of articles that are submitted to their top peer-reviewed journals from China. It's gone from, uh, let's see, it's, it's risen 30% in a decade. One-fifth of all their articles now come from China, and actually their staff as well. They used to have 12% of their editors outside the United States nine years ago. Now they have one-quarter of their editors are outside the U.S. And another form of mobility, of course, is the mobility of campuses themselves. And what I'm thinking about here is what's called the branch campus, or the satellite campus phenomenon. This is when universities, mostly in the West, set up outposts in, in the Middle East, in Asia, typically. And this really reflects the, the huge interest there is in these kinds of Western degrees. And one could say that, of course, we know about student mobility, people coming to study in the West. But this is an example of really taking your, if you like, taking your product to the customer. And here's a, a branch campus that I visited in, uh, in Doha, um, in, in, in Qatar. And uh, as you can see, it's a massive building. If you look inside, it's very luxurious. There's marble everywhere. This is all paid for by the, by the Qatari government. Uh, but in fact, uh, this is the campus of Texas A&M, uh, the engineering school based in College Station, Texas. And that giant door opened up when I was there, and I saw several women come out in, in black abayas from head to toe. And uh, there are also signs right you know, all along the sides that say, Welcome Home Aggies. So you see all kinds of these juxtapositions. You, know, you walk inside, and there are men's prayer rooms, there are women's prayer rooms, there's a washing station, but there's also a Starbucks, and there's also a subway. So you see all, all kinds of combinations of, uh, of, of cultures, both inside and outside the classroom. So there's, there's a huge amount going on when it comes to mobility, but it has created a certain amount of anxiety. And uh, one thing one often hears about, and that I've heard about since I started uh, speaking about the book, is the question of brain drain. It's a word that's been around for several decades. You know, and the, the general concern is that you have some of the best talent from the developing world going to the West, um, taking away some of the, some of the, you know, the, the brains that you, you would, you would want to keep at home. And that's, that's the concern. And, you know, people do very, in my view, very unwise things sometimes to counter that. One of the directors of one of the IITs uh, in, uh, they call it IIT Bombay, uh, north of Mumbai, it, a few years ago he prevented all of his undergraduates from going overseas to get research internships or uh, academic uh, or industry internships because he wanted to keep those brains at home. Um, we have the converse concern of course, uh, in the United States, for example, that all these talented foreign students who are coming in and you know, taking up 60, 65% of the places in PhD programs in fields like computer science, physics, engineering, that those students are somehow crowding out Americans. Uh, and there is, uh, there's, you know, been, this has uh, led to controversial policies, and in some cases, trying to actually limit the numbers of foreign students. In, in, uh, and of course, in our visa policies, you know, there's been a lot of... Uh, there are security concerns, but I think also there, there are concerns when you talk about something like H-1B visas for talented foreign workers. We have caps on those visas, which have been very problematic. I believe you've had a debate in this country as well, or recently, over uh, visa quotas for overseas academics. 
that many universities would like to attract. So there's a lot of mobility. There is a certain amount of anxiety. There are some unwise measures that are taken, uh, what I call academic protectionism in, in the book. But I feel very strongly that we should embrace these developments. We shouldn't worry about them. And the fundamental reason is that we're, we're now in a dynamic higher education world. We're not in a static world. You know, one, of course, has heard the term brain train for years, but now people often talk about the idea of brain mobility, or you hear the term brain exchange. And this is really to capture how different some of the old patterns are, or some of the, how some of the old patterns are really beginning to change. Um, one statistic that surprised me as I was working on the book was that China, which of course in, in the States, and I think here one thinks of as a place that sends lots and lots of students overseas, and it does, but it actually now receives more foreign students uh, into China than it sends away. So th these old patterns are beginning to shift. Um, China, by the way, just announced they want to double the 240,000 students they now attract to half a million by 2020. They're, they make no unambitious plans. You could look at patterns of study and work where it's now become more common for students uh, from the, uh, the developing world to come to the perhaps one Western country for a first degree, to go to another country for another advanced degree, then to go back home, perhaps to work for a multinational, as their home economies in places like India and China, of course, have been booming. It's much more attractive. They financially can be a good deal. There's cultural and, and family ties. So things are changing. And you know, a great example at the faculty level of brain circulation is a guy named Chun Fang Shi, who's uh, ethnically Chinese. He's from Singapore. He came to the West, first to Canada for a master's, then to Harvard for a PhD. He became a very distinguished materials scientist. He uh, was in industry for a decade. He went to Brown University, became a tenured professor. So, so far, that's the classic trajectory, right? Singapore to the West. But then he was recruited back to Singapore by the National University of Singapore, which is trying to sort of rise to a prominent position on the, on the global stage. He headed an important research group there, and then he was promoted, he became president of NUS. So there you have a complete reversal of the classic trajectory. And then to add a new twist, he was then recruited last year to KAUST to become the first president of KAUST. So he's now crisscrossed the world several times. And I wouldn't suggest that he is typical, uh, of course, of, of, uh, of faculty or university leadership, but I do think that he's emblematic of the kinds of possibilities that now exist. And just to touch briefly on the question about you know, domestic students uh, being squeezed out. I mean, first of all, there's, there's some interesting uh, research showing that in the United States, uh, which I know best, you know, there are in periods when a lot of foreign students have come in for PhDs in the fields I mentioned, many programs have simply expanded. So the idea that there's sort of a fixed number of degrees and, and, and that can be awarded simply isn't true. So there's been a lot of flexibility. And of course, you know, I would also add that we know uh, that talented students who come to the United States are a huge asset to us in terms of human capital. Uh, they've been disproportionately involved in, uh, in founding Silicon Valley firms, for example. Uh, they've been very much uh, an important, I'd say a key part of the knowledge economy that um, despite this sort of current hard times, that's really been very important to our growth and our, our overall prosperity. The bottom line here, I think, is that a world of this kind of mobility lets people get ahead to a greater and greater extent, slowly but surely, based on what they know, not on who they are, not on their family background or their national origins, or social origins. And this is the principle of meritocracy, and it's a hugely important one. Now, I've talked about the ways in which a highly mobile, a mobile, uh, a highly mobile worldwide education marketplace is developed. Well, you know, global markets, uh, I believe, like other kinds of markets, and I'm thinking of financial markets, for example, Need, these, these global markets need information in order to function. 
And so it may have been inevitable that this mobility of students, of faculty, of research, of campuses themselves, has been accompanied by a real proliferation of college rankings, not just at the national level, but globally. And of course, these rankings are hugely controversial. Uh, I know this well, having been at US News and having overseen the, the, the famous or infamous college and graduate guides that include the, the US News rankings. But I think that rankings uh, really have the potential to be very useful to higher education. Let me talk a little bit, of, a little bit about the, the growth of rankings. And I'll begin with, I think, probably my all-time favorite ranking slide. It was shown to me by a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And it dates back to 1895, in fact, at UC Berkeley, then a relatively new university. And if you look carefully, this is a ranking of physical fitness, comparing the University of California at Berkeley with uh, the young men of that university with a sampling of students on the East Coast. These are the elite places, the students at Yale, at Amherst, at Cornell. And if you look up here, I'm not sure how well you can see, but they looked, of course, at their weight and height. They measured the girth of their necks and their chests, their left and their right arms. They looked at the strengths of what they could lift in terms of their backs and their legs. And they actually compared them with rather a good sample, 15,000 students. Uh, again, I hope that meets the social science criteria. I'm, I'm self-conscious of being here at, at LSC, but I think that's not a bad sample. And what I love about this is not only that it is sort of a precursor of the fascination with stacking things up, ranking, sorting, but also that it really foreshadows the real fascination today with value-added assessment. Because if you look, you'll see that the, the, the young men of the uh, University of California start off behind on all these measurements, but after two years in the, the brisk Bay Area air, they managed to surpass all the blue bloods on the East Coast. So, you know, this is 1895. This is a while ago. But rankings, you know, continued uh, in one form or another throughout the 20th century. They didn't become a, really a mass phenomenon until 1983, and that's when my former employer, U.S. News & World Report, first published the uh, U.S. News rankings Initially, really a, a poll, a survey of college presidents asking them, which do you think are the best universities out there? And they, they answered the poll, and you know, U.S. News published it. Uh, it, of course, quickly became very unpopular among the presidents. They tried to get U.S. News to stop doing this. U.S. News said, no, we won't stop it. We'll try and make it a little more sophisticated. They added some metrics like graduation rates uh, per pupil, uh, class size, research spending. And the rankings became hugely popular. Uh, I think it sort of rode the wave of the consumer movement that had really uh, come to the fore in, in the States in the 1970s. And what I didn't know when I worked at US News was just how influential those rankings were internationally. Uh, in the time since then, there are now about 40 rankings around the world. And it's not just in places you might expect, of course, in the UK or a place like Italy or Canada. But you now have national level rankings in places like Peru, Kazakhstan, Nigeria, um, all over the world. Probably, though, the biggest breakthrough, I think certainly for, for this evening's topic, came in 2003, when a Chinese university, Shanghai Jiao Tong University, published the first really truly global university rankings. The following year, uh, the British publication, uh, then called the Times Higher Education Supplement, uh, they, they dropped the word supplement, they published their rankings for the first time. Very different uh, methodologies. Uh, Shanghai was very much a science-based methodology, research-focused. Um, Times Higher had a much larger survey component, a much larger reputational component, tried to capture several dimensions of, of the university. And I'll just show you, uh, in case you haven't seen them, the most recent version of these rankings. Uh, these are just from the last month or so, so I'll, I'll let you pause for a minute and you can notice if you look carefully that the Times Higher uh, rankings do manage to get several more British universities into their top ten. 
But these, of course, are you know are well known are well known institutions, um, and I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next. 20, 30, 40 years. I'm not sure how much the top 10 is going to be shaken up, but I think that I would place bets on the top 50 looking somewhat different as the competition that I've described really heats up and we see some, some fairly successful new entrants in, in this marketplace. Now, once again, I think this is a fascinating phenomena. I, I think it's an important phenomena, but it's caused a lot of worries, a lot of criticism and anxiety. And uh, when I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago for a conference, uh, a, a very distinguished French academic, uh, Monique Cantos-Sperber, who's a philosopher, and she is the director of the École Normale Supérieure, which is one of the grandes écoles in, in France, one of the elite institutions. She came all the way to Shanghai to give a passionate speech about how terrible the Shanghai rankings were. They were terribly unfair to her institution, and um, they really should just you know, you know, revamp their whole, their whole methodology. And of course, this was great for me, because when I was at US News, I was always on the receiving end of this kind of thing from college presidents. Now I, I just got to sit on the sidelines and watch. But it was exactly parallel. It was a global version of the same phenomena I'd observed with American college presidents coming in to complain to us. And I think very broadly speaking, uh, oh, and you know, <laughs> the, the French Minister of Higher Education, Valérie Pécresse, has said the problem with rankings is that they exist. So, you know, not very happy about rankings in France. Um, in general, I think the criticism of rankings is that in some sense they, they threaten the integrity of, of universities, of the academic enterprise. And they do this, you know, the critics say, by focusing on the wrong factors, by creating perverse incentives. Um, that they really don't measure how effective universities are. And uh, that's especially true, I think, when it comes to teaching and learning. And of course, if you really hate rankings like the French, you know, it makes sense to create your own, which is exactly what an elite French engineering school um, called um, Paris Mintech did a few years ago. And it yielded, I think this is probably my second favorite rankings slide. This was the headline that appeared in one of the education publications after this French global ranking was released. And it said, as you can see, French do well in French world rankings. So, um, <coughs> you know, Clearly, you know, there's a proliferation of rankings, and you know, people sometimes try to, try to stack the deck. But you know, once again, I think that despite all this anxiety and criticism, I think the rankings are ultimately useful. And it's absolutely true they have many flaws. I would never suggest otherwise. But they can be helpful to students, to universities, to policymakers. And I think that's because they provide an external yardstick that can help decision making. Um, and they can ultimately help universities improve. I, when I was visiting, uh, working on the book, I was in England a couple of years ago at the University of Warwick. And I met a, a student from South Africa, a chemistry PhD student. Uh, she had gotten her bachelor's in South Africa. She wanted to go abroad. She didn't really have a sense of what was out there. And so her first step was to look at some of the global rankings, just to get a sense of what some of the top institutions were. She didn't base her whole decision on that. But that was certainly a factor for her as her sort of first, um, as her first threshold. We also know that governments you know, who are trying to improve the, the capacity of their research institutions want to get a sense of just how successful those institutions are compared to other places in the world, perhaps where they should place their bets among different institutions within the country. And, and China, I mentioned, you know, the, the Shanghai Jiao Tong rankings, they weren't set up because somebody thought it would be cool to do a global ranking. They were set up because China is enormously uh, devoted to improving its universities. I'll talk more about that. They wanted to have some kind of a benchmark against which to measure, you know, figure out where they were and to figure out where they, where they wanted to go. So that's why they created their rankings. And I think that practically speaking, we have to understand that rankings are here to stay. You know, we're in the age of accountability. And that's not gonna, that's not gonna change. Um, 
I think the real challenge is going to be how to make rankings better. And the good news there is we are seeing some promising efforts. The OECD has launched an effort that's called AHILO, which uh, stands for the Assessment of Higher Education Learning Outcomes. And they don't call it a ranking. You'll, you'll get in trouble if you call it a ranking. There, there was once a memo, and this was just beginning, calling it the PISA of higher education. Now, PISA being the international test comparisons for 15-year-olds in a lot of uh, industrialized countries. And, um, or maybe it's been beyond the OECD. So they say it's not a ranking, but it's an effort to sort of make cross-national comparisons uh, between universities looking at the quality of their undergraduate education in particular. And this is done in part by actually testing students as they come in. And then ultimately, they'd like to test students as they leave and sort of figure out what the value added is, both in terms of their general capabilities in writing and analytical skills, and also their subject-specific abilities. Now, this is in, it's just being piloted this year. It's in early days. We don't know how, how well it's going to work, but I think it's, it's great that they're trying that. And Times Higher, I think, has done uh, a really good job revamping their ranking in the last year. I, I'm not, uh, if anyone from Times Higher is listening, I'm not suggesting that I think their ranking is, is perfect or that they've they finished the job. But I think what they did that was important was they recognized that some of the criticisms were legitimate. They, they split from their previous partner, QS, which has continued uh, to do its, its own rankings, which, which defends them vigorously. Times Higher has taken a lot of input. Um, they've been very transparent. I, I got on their Twitter feed, and I, you know, it seems like five times a day I'll hear about a new speech that somebody is giving or a new session they're having to get input from academics on trying to fix things. So they've come up with a brand new methodology, and I think that that's all to the good, and I think that's, uh, that's only going to continue. And I think that uh, we, we are going to ultimately get better rankings, and we need better rankings. Now, for all the controversy over the rankings, uh, of course, many countries do use them to assess where they stand in the global academic pecking order. And that makes perfect sense because we're in an era when nation after nation has set very ambitious goals for creating world-class universities. And that's the, the third and I think perhaps the most significant trend that I'm going to tell you about. A lot of nations very correctly see a thriving university system as the pathway to innovation and to economic growth. And I like to show people this quote, which comes from a book that came out a couple of years ago, The Race Between Education and Technology, which sort of sums it up very nicely. Uh, human capital embodied in one's people is the most fundamental part of the wealth of nations. And you know, we hear a lot about the knowledge economy, and it might even be considered a bit cliche, but sometimes cliches are true. And I think this really represents the, 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 the consensus around the world. Um, so you know, universities understand, uh, as with other forms of globalization, their competition isn't just uh, national or, or regional. Their competition is global. Um, they don't want to just send students overseas. They don't want to just host branch campuses on their own soil. They want to create their, their own top-notch institutions. And, as I said, there's huge competition now to do this from you know, China, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, and places like France and Germany that once had great universities that have really fallen on hard times in many ways uh, are now trying to, to recreate some, some top universities by, by targeting their efforts. And broadly speaking, universities are doing this in several ways. Um, I'm sorry, I've gone to the wrong... Universities are doing this in, in several ways. They're spending to become more competitive. Uh, China has spent billions uh, into, on doing two things. They've increased mass access uh, in, in an extraordinary way. They've 
quadrupled, or I've even heard quintupled, the number of students enrolled in their system within just a decade or so. They've also targeted funds on a, a, a group of perhaps 30 or 40 research universities that they would like to improve significantly. And even within that group, they've looked at a group of nine universities and given them significant extra funding. And they're calling that group the Chinese Ivy League, because that's what they aspire to. In Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah put $10 billion into KAUST when KAUST was created which instantly gave it the sixth largest university endowment in the world. So these are you know, extraordinary sums that are being spent. The second thing countries and universities are doing, uh, as businesses do when they're trying to improve, is to get the top talent. So they're recruiting to become more competitive. And again, China's a great example of this. They have uh, succeeded in luring back many uh, of, of their uh, ethnically Chinese, uh, well, overseas Chinese, they call them, professors who've left the country, who've gone to the West, who've become very successful in many cases, and they have tried to bring them back home. They call them sea turtles, which uh, I don't speak Chinese, unfortunately, but apparently it's a homonym for the word returnee in Chinese. So they're recruiting the sea turtles. The, the country, of course, is much more prosperous than it once was. It's a much more attractive place to live in many ways. They can offer them very good financial deals to come back. And a country like South Korea is doing the same thing. They're putting a lot of money into recruiting. Uh, a few years ago, uh, one of their universities recruited this uh, wunderkind, a woman from MIT, a 27-year-old, won all kinds of awards, the kind of person who could have gone anywhere uh, in the United States, but she went to South Korea for her first job out of, out of her PhD. The third thing universities are doing is creating partnerships to become more competitive. And Singapore, I think, is, is probably the best example of this. And what they're doing there is the government, and uh, sometimes they'll do this um, on, a, on a freestanding basis. Sometimes they'll do it within the National University of Singapore. But they're bringing in top Western universities uh, to establish uh, partnerships and campuses there. So MIT, for example, now has a, a presence in Singapore. So does Carnegie Mellon University. So does the University of Chicago's business school, uh, the Booth School of Business. And uh, in fact, Yale University and the National University of Singapore, NUS, just announced a, a partnership they would like to do, it's not a done deal yet, where Yale would uh, create an undergraduate liberal arts college within NUS. And uh, this, you know, uh, it's interesting. I mean, one of the questions for the Western universities that are in these partnerships is always brand dilution. You know, uh, Yale worries a lot about keeping up their quality, but what they've actually done is sort of split the baby because the degrees will not be granted by Yale, they'll be granted by NUS, but the, the institution, if this happens, will be called Yale NUS College. So it will have the Yale, the Yale name on it. Um, of course, you know, we're here at LSE, and we know that LSE has this uh, partnership with, with Sciences Po in, in Paris and with Columbia University. And you know, it's interesting, I was at Sciences Po a couple of years ago doing interviews for the book, and what they told me, a guy named um, uh, Francis Verriot, who is their sort of international director, said when he goes to India and, and talks about various kinds of partnerships there, people haven't really heard of Sciences Po so much in India. You know, it's a very, very good place. It's very well respected in, in Europe. But if you, if you say to them, well, but we are a partner with LSC and Columbia, automatically they sort of sit up and take notice. So universities are doing all these things, the spending, the recruiting, the partnerships, and it's really a, a big drive to, to improve. But once again, some people are worried about this phenomenon. And I think that the fundamental worry, certainly in the West in general, and I can say in the United States in particular, and I think one hears this in the UK, is that we're losing our edge, that we're no longer going to be number one. I think when it comes in particular to Chinese universities, to other Asian universities, there is, there's a lot of um, fretting and, and even 
almost panicking about the, the alleged peril, uh, either economic or academic or both, uh, that's posed by the huge number of science and engineering PhDs that are being pumped out by these universities. Uh, I mean, it's something President Obama talks about occasionally during the campaign a few years ago. He sort of basically said, how can we stay competitive when all these countries in Asia, China and South Korea, are producing so many engineering and science PhDs and we are not keeping up. Um, in this country, Ian Gao, who was the founding president of Nottingham University's campus in Ningbo in China, he has uh, cautioned that China, China's partnerships with British universities are a one-way street, that, um, that China is, is really trying to vacuum up uh, Western science and technology strengths uh, that they really badly want to gain. Although I think he said hoovering up, but I, I think I translated it for the, for the American audience. Um, and the quote that he was quoted as saying, British universities must stop viewing this aggressively ambitious country through rose-tinted spectacles. And I think in general, this sort of reasoning goes you know, along the lines that if others are getting ahead, we must be falling behind. Once again, I really think that we should be embracing these changes, that we shouldn't be afraid of them. And all this kind of alarmism, I really think, is badly misplaced. It's absolutely true that Western institutions are getting a run for their money. I mean, we're in a very competitive environment, as I've said. But we really have to embrace, and we should embrace, the global higher education marketplace fundamentally because increasing knowledge is not a zero-sum game. Knowledge is not a finite resource like gold or silver that's going to run out, you know, that we all have to sort of scramble for and fight for. It's something that can expand. It's something that can grow. And I think that the apprehensive response that we, we sometimes hear to hear about you know, university globalization really amounts to modern-day mercantilism. Uh, and that's this sort of notion that this outmoded idea that in order to prosper, a nation has to grab on to the maximum share of this limited amount of, of, uh, of global capital. And really, nothing could be further from the truth. Knowledge is also a public good. And it's something that you really can't contain within one country. And that's great news, because it means that research advances in one nation can really be taken advantage of uh, by scientists, by innovators, by all kinds of people in other countries, including in the UK. So when we hear about all the smart people in China who are getting PhDs in these important fields, we have to understand that's good for us. It's not bad for us. It's not something we should be worried about. And you know, we, need the, 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 we need more well-trained minds, you know, whatever their nationality, wherever they are, working on the big problems in healthcare, in, in technology, in science. It's really not a matter of vacuuming up knowledge. It's a matter of spreading knowledge. And our living standards are going to rise as universities in other countries become much more successful. Now, I'm going to turn just for a minute to the, the spending cuts that have just been announced here. And I, mean, I think it really raises the question of what do you need to, to, to maintain a great university system? And I would suggest that you need some combination of, of mass access and increasing access at a time when we know how important human capital is to uh, certainly to individual economic success and also to, to nationwide economic prosperity. Mass access is important, and so is research uh, spending, for, because we know all about the contributions research makes to innovation in all kinds of respects. I think that, you know, given the budget environment here, you know, universities, uh, I think, are going to have to, sort of, in a way, do the best with the, the hand they've been dealt, and in some cases, to try to make a, a virtue of necessity. Now, uh, compared to what we were hearing last week, you know, I was in the States then, and there were there was prospects of really huge research cuts. I think research, as I understand it, has largely 
dodge the bullet, although there will be some, some de facto cuts, but the budget has largely been spared. Of course, teaching budgets have been, have been slashed, and you know, there's going to be this move to uh, you know, uh, this notion I talked about knowledge being a public good, and a lot of you know, countries have treated university education as, as so much of a public good that it should be paid for very largely by the state. Well, that's beginning to shift. Uh, people are seeing it more as a private good. And that certainly happened in the United States, as we've seen more and more of a shift in university financial aid in the last couple of decades from outright grants to a much higher use of loans. But I think that you know, institutions, well, I'll say two things. I, I think on the, on the fees, the real question is going to be whether it's going to be possible to maintain and to improve access. And I think there actually is some evidence from the United States that this may be doable. And I think it, it really has to be done. Uh, the example that comes to mind, I was in Los Angeles speaking last week. And I was talking about the uh, student fees at UCLA, you know, a very distinguished campus of the University of California. They've increased very dramatically compared to a decade or 20 years ago. I mean, California has had a tradition of really rock-bottom student fees. It's been very badly eroded uh, already, and then the state budget crisis has meant fees have gone up very steeply to ten or $11,000 a year. And if you add in living expenses, you know, to live in a dormitory and, and that sort of thing, and you know, your books and everything else, UCLA estimates that a student has to spend about $30,000 a year, which is enormous. But then I looked up uh, the figures on what percentage of UCLA's undergraduates receive Pell Grants, which are federal grants, they're not loans, that go to low-income students. Uh, not, not middle class, but really quite low income. Well, it turns out it's a record this year. It's 36%, which I thought was quite extraordinary. And of course, that is not the case at other top universities. It depends a lot on the state. It depends on the publics and the privates. But what that does tell me is that it's possible to create a system where you, have, you maintain uh, excellent universities, uh, although you know, the University of California is not out of the woods. I mean, they're, they're very concerned about maintaining their research excellence. But they're still a pretty good university, and they're still maintaining a pretty, a pretty broad cross-section of students. So I think that can be done. I think that there are other ways of trying to improve the quality of the universities that may not even involve spending a lot of money. And of course, uh, immigration and visa policy comes to mind immediately. I mentioned before the quotas on foreign academics. I think that that's a, that's a tremendous barrier you know, to bring in the best talent if you're trying to create institutions that are about seeking the truth and you know, creating important you know, groundbreaking research. You need to have the best people you can. As I said, meritocracy is just a, a core principle of universities if they're going to be successful. And it, it really has to become a, more and more a, princ a core principle if you're going to compete successfully in this global marketplace. Uh, finally, just on, the, on the, the, the situation here, I think it's also true that mission differentiation here is going to be a fact of life. I think it's already begun. Um, and we have the same debate in the United States. There are a lot of universities, in my view, that are sort of chasing after this notion of being research universities, when really they should try to focus on being excellent teaching institutions and attracting students to, to, um, you know, to courses that are, that, you know, that are done well, that not only get students in the, the front door, we have a big problem with attrition, but also get stu students through to graduation with, with, uh, with a useful degree. But those may not be the same places that are doing the, the path-breaking research. So you really need to try to have both. And I think you know, a university cannot be all things to all people. So I've talked about several aspects of this great brain race, the huge mobility, the global rankings, this you know, race everywhere to create fantastic universities that can compete on a global level. And they're all embodied, as I said, if you want to think of one place where you can see all of this is China. You know, it's a huge sender of students. It's a huge receiver of students. It's a place where countries try to create branch campuses uh, 
Although even more often than that, they're creating partnerships because it's actually hard to create a, a full-fledged branch campus. And of course, China is also trying to create a system of great universities. Uh, I want to reiterate that despite the anxieties that you sometimes hear about university globalization, both in the US and the UK and other countries as well, it's absolutely crucial that we reject academic protectionism in all of its forms. As I said before, knowledge is not a finite resource that everyone has to fight over. It's something that can grow and that can benefit everyone. It's an opportunity. It's not a threat. And I think when we hear about professors and students circulating around the world, when we hear about other nations improving their universities, we should really welcome those developments. Here's what I want to leave you with. As we look to the, the future of global higher education, I think it's entirely possible that the entire us versus them paradigm the prism through which we so often look at global competition is really increasingly out of date and is likely to become even, even more so. Um, we already have research collaborations of all kinds across borders. We have all kinds of partnerships, as I, as I mentioned before, and we may see whole new ways of organizing universities down the road. Uh, we were talking before I started uh, about Nigel Thrift at the University of Warwick who uses the business analogy and talks about firm theory and this idea that Universities might first create branches in other places, then they might look, at, look for strategic partnerships, perhaps create mergers, and you could even imagine one day a multinational university. Um, John Sexton, who's the president of New York University, a very global university, very ambitious, just opened up a full undergraduate program in Abu Dhabi. Uh, he talks about the idea of a global network university. His idea is that a university would not necessarily, its historic geographic center would not necessarily be the fixed center, that you might start your degree in Abu Dhabi and finish in Shanghai, where they'd like to, to create a campus. Uh, you might start in Shanghai and finish in New York. And there's lots of permutations and combinations you can imagine. You know, we just don't know what's around the corner. Um, remember, remember, in the 19th century, Americans flocked to Germany, where the research university, the modern research university, was created, the, the so-called Humboldtian Research University. This notion that you would put teaching and research under one roof with academic freedom, freedom from government interference. So Americans went there to study. They liked the model. They took it back home. They created institutions like the University of Chicago, like Johns Hopkins University. And they sort of took it, they copied it, they ran with it. And after World War II, we became far and away the world's best university system. We became a magnet for, for everybody. Everybody wants those degrees. And what's interesting is in 150 years, we've seen a complete turnaround because now Germany, which has had really a, a very egalitarian funding system in the last few decades, which in my view means that they've pretty much been equal in their mediocrity. They don't have a very strong system with, with a few bright spots they accept it. So the Germans are now looking at the United States model and trying to create more competitive funding systems and create some, some better universities by adopting the principles. So there's been a whole turnaround in 150 years. And I think that just tells us that a lot can change pretty quickly and that the same patterns of mobility, the, the patterns of competition that we worry about today may look quite different down the road. But one thing that I think won't change is that the key to innovation and the key to economic growth in the future is going to lie in the freest possible movement of people and of ideas, both on campuses and beyond. And I think it's a very exciting time, and I'm really interested to see what's going to happen next. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Ben. Um, as I said in my introduction, I, I have actually read this book over the summer. Uh, I think it's an excellent book. It's a, a very insightful, very well-written account of precisely the themes that Ben has been talking about, and he, he will be signing copies of the book uh, outside afterwards. Um, and given the sort of new role that I have here, I mean, I found it uh, profoundly insightful to a number of issues that anybody uh, helping to run a university is now facing. So afterwards there will be an opportunity to buy the book and to get it signed if you want to. Now we're going to move to uh, question and answers. Uh, I think we're going to take questions individually. A microphone will come to you. Uh, please just say who you are, introduce yourself, and try and ask a question rather than make a very long statement. Yes. Ben, um, just a quick question about innovation. One of the things that there doesn't seem to be much innovation on is the form of teaching. We still have very traditional things of you know, one degree, then a master's degree, then a PhD program. And I just wondered whether there was any evidence that there is competition emerging in different forms of learning other than just doing one year one place, one year another place, and whether that was a new era of competition. Well, Jill, great question. Uh, Jill's an old friend. I, I did not plant the question, um, but I'm, I'm glad you asked. I mean, there's many ways one could respond. I mean, I think on the global stage, of course, distance learning is something that I talk about in the book quite a bit. I didn't talk about it much this evening. I think that that certainly has a lot of potential to sort of break through some of the traditional structures, as do for-profit uh, institutions, which I also devote a chapter to in the book. We may, we may perhaps have time to talk about that tonight. I think that what we really lack, and I'll speak about the United States, uh, just as, since I know that, that system well, and I'm actually starting some new work, sort of looking at some of the obstacles to innovation. We don't have very good outcome measures. You know, I talked before about this uh, OECD effort to look at how much students learn. We don't have good ways of, of, of assessing that. And you know, one could imagine, for example, uh, you know, we have things like the bar exam for attorneys. You know, we have you know, medical licensing and so forth. But if you had you know, some sort of independent national standard I mean, in certain, you know, perhaps certain subjects or perhaps for certain, uh, certain professions, you, know, you could imagine you know, somebody could, you know, it used to be, you know, you didn't have to go to law school you know, once upon a time in the United States. You know, you could just study for the bar as an apprentice, you know, and then you would, if you could pass it, you could be a practicing attorney. We, we don't have that much flexibility now, so I think one way of getting there would be to create sort of better outcome measures so one could compare universities, and actually that allows you to do a better sort of price quality assessment, which right now it's very hard. I mean, prestige is one of the areas that universities compete on, and certainly at the high level. And it, it's not always clear, you know, if kids come into Harvard, everyone always picks on Harvard, you know, they, they come in at the 99.9th percentile and they leave at the 99.9th percentile, what has Harvard added? Um, nothing wrong with it, but it, that's not so, so clear. And I think that gets to your questions, if you're going to look at different forms, and if you believe in the sort of idea of, uh, I think they call it um, loose-tight or tight-loose, you know, management, where you're, you're tight on the outcomes, but you're very um, agnostic on how people get there. People talk about this a lot with elementary and secondary education uh, in the states with the charter school movement and, and so forth. I think in universities too that would be helpful because that would give people greater incentive to sort of try different things and not to be stuck with that sort of carbon copy model. I think there was another question nearby. Yeah. Hi, Ben. Um, you spoke about mission differentiation. 
but my question goes back to your comments about college rankings or university rankings, because very often they create a culture, they, they influence university behavior. And so you get in the UK, for example, all the universities trying to be research intensive universities because that's what gets rewarded, um, whereas excellent teaching simply does not. Um, and of course, in addition to that, we now just have 40% you know, cut in, in funding, most of which will be uh, cut to teaching. So there's a, there's a real worry there that, you know, on the one hand, we talk about differentiation, we talk about universities sticking to their mission. And on the other hand, we, we, we create a system whereby we just reward everyone the same way, and therefore they all aspire to be the same. How do we go about changing that? Well, I mean, look, I, I think that this has certainly been one of the weaknesses of rankings, has been not having good measures of teaching effectiveness and of student learning, as, as I just said. I would hope that if that, are you, if I turn this off by mistake? Um, I, would, I would hope that we can develop better assessments. It's possible that if you really want to do apples to apples comparisons, that you should have uh, teaching rankings uh, once you have some better measures. I mean, Times Higher has attempted to get at this, I think, um, but, but again, it's through surveys. It's, it's not, uh, you know, it's very hard to measure teaching effectiveness directly. Shanghai Jiao Tong makes no effort to do this at all. They don't pretend to. They have a very transparent process. It's all on their website. There's no, you know, Wizard of Oz behind the scenes, but it's all about research. So I, I agree. I mean, I, I think, though, that if you're, if you're going to try to get people, I mean, there's a big issue in the States, you know, uh, people chasing after, um, trying to be something that they shouldn't be. You do need to find a way of rewarding them. Um, I mean, you know, it may be something like, I don't know the system here well enough, although you know, one could argue that moving toward a system of, where sort of money follows a student is going to provide, if things work out as, as planned, as, as the Brown Report suggests, you know, that universities will have to prove their effectiveness to students. There will be sort of a market test, and that if you can attract students and you can, you can show that you're, you know, you're effective um, and that you can you know, pr prepare people in a, in a useful way, then you will be able to get some of that funding. Just wait a sec for the mic. Thanks. Well, I think you have to sort of look at sort of, I mean, yeah. I guess the cultural context is important, I mean, just in terms of how quickly and how, how that can be done, how realistic it is, but absolutely. I mean, there isn't much of a culture here of alumni giving, for example. It's, it's huge in the United States. I mean, you know, now Harvard has a ton of money, and it's because lots of people go, graduate from Harvard and become vastly wealthy, and some of them give back a lot of money. You know, as, as I understand it, I mean, I think, uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's been you know, some effort to get this going here. But it just isn't anywhere near on, on the same level, and there's no reason that um, there's no reason that pri you know, private don donations couldn't become a much bigger part of this system. Um, and you, you could also talk about private and industry funding. I mean, that, that of course brings with it a whole set of questions about you know keeping research independent and so on. But I think that I, I personally think that those obstacles can be, can be overcome and that there actually are some very useful synergies. Um, so in other countries, you know, I think it's even a more alien of a concept. You know, I think in, you know, in, in European universities, I mean, Indian universities, I mean, Chinese universities, it's interesting. I, I can't remember if it was Tsinghua or Peking University, but one of the elite universities has begun to sort of in a small way go after alumni donations. So I think people see that as a, as a, as a pathway, but it's very hard to get there, you know, it's very hard to get there immediately. And in a place like France, I mean, I just don't see it. You know, um, 
in, in the near term, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but there has been, and I think it's been very destructive to their system, but there has been this sort of sense that it's all a public responsibility, that um, you know, it's an outrage. You know, I mean, I was a, a, a teaching assistant in France in the, in the 80s during a, you know, riots and protests you know, uh, when they wanted to raise student fees you know, from, I don't know, $100 a year to 120 and that was going to exclude you know, tens of thousands of students. And, there were sympathy strikes, you know. So in that sort of environment, I think that it is, it is hard to move ahead with alternative funding sources, but I think it's, it's going to be necessary. It is changing here. I mean, Cambridge has just raised a billion pounds. Oh, is that right? Just celebrated its... Oh, that's Alison. Well, that's the former yeah. Yale yeah. Um, provost who's gone over there. Yeah, yeah. Just celebrated its 800th birthday last year. There's a... Somebody had a hand up there. Yeah. Two. Two hands. Hello, uh, my name's Louis, I work at Pearson. Uh, I'm sorry, you're a student here? Uh, no, my name's Louis, I work at Pearson. Ah. Um, so I was going to pick up the point about um, alternative forms of funding, if we're going to see a cut in public funding. Uh, you've talked about um, it becoming a private, education becoming a private good, and so individual well, a learners... a combination, I would say. Sure, so individual learners paying more. You've talked a bit about alumni paying more, and then you've touched on private business paying more. So I know of, I think, four examples in the UK of private businesses sponsoring undergraduate courses. Um, so for example, Tesco sponsors a retail course. The supermarket Morrison sponsors a food manufacturing course. GSK, the pharmaceutical company, has just started sponsoring one module in chemistry uh, at the undergraduate degree at Nottingham. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's another one, I forget. Um, I wondered if you had any international examples of that kind of big business involvement in education and how that could be a good thing. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I was over at, um, I, I, I had lunch with someone from The Economist today who was mentioning an example of Infosys, which I also visited briefly when I was in India, um, co-founders and IIT uh, alumnus. They do a tremendous amount of their own training because uh, the Indian university system is just uh, terribly inadequate. It's really, it's really a tragedy because it's a, it's a country with an incredibly, you know, obviously a large population, hungry for learning, you know, incredible human capital, and a really just a horribly inadequate system, both in terms of mass access, not enough universities, and really not good quality. Um, and, and also, to make matters worse, you know, this kind of academic protectionist mentality where they're, for years, have tried kept, keep, kept, they've tried to keep out foreign universities um, with really explicitly sort of protectionist measures. And even now, they're debating a measure in parliament that would open things up, but it's not at all clear you know, in what form it'll, it'll get through in. So. To come to your, your question, um, private industry in some cases had to sort of train its own people. Um, you know, which you know, I mean, that's one way of that's one way of doing things. I I don't I guess I would what I had in mind really was this notion that um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the example of GSK. I'm actually going up to, to Sheffield. Did you say it was Nottingham or Sheffield? Nottingham. Nottingham yeah. The, you know, I mean, I think that's that's, that's sort of an interesting idea. I mean, uh, again, of course, you know, the, the, you know, academic freedom and sort of the pursuing the truth, no holds barred, is your core mission. You know, I, I do think that you know you, you have to uh, you know just be cautious. But I also think that there's a lot that can be done. Uh, you know, I mean, I work for a foundation that promotes entrepreneurship and that believes you can do a lot with uh, what's called you know typically called technology transfer, and that can really be helpful. And that you know one shouldn't make it too difficult for universities and industry to work together. Somebody, yes, sir. right at the front there. Come over here. Good evening. I'm Anjana Singh from the Department of Economic History. I don't have a specific question, but comments on which maybe you could comment to help understand. 
You said knowledge is infinite. Um, historically, I think um, the way knowledge has been accumulated and dispersed and organized in a particular way, say Northwest Europe, um, that is why it has gone through an economic boom which the poorer parts of the world have not been able to do. Your last comment that education in India is pretty much a disaster at the moment also hints at the same thing. Um, so I'm trying to connect between knowledge as an infinite product from which all societies, all people can benefit and intellectual property rights by which some parts of the world are far richer than others. Could you please comment? Of course. Well, I mean, first of all, the notion that the knowledge is, uh, the increasing knowledge is not a zero-sum uh, question. And that was really the, the, the thrust of my, my comment is, I, mean, I suppose if it's not finite, I suppose you could say it's infinite. I, I hadn't thought of it quite in those terms, but it was more the notion that it's not a scarce resource. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the notion that, you know, countries, you know, one country can benefit from the knowledge that's discovered in another country, I don't think that means that there won't be inequality. I mean, that would be, that would be a silly claim. I, I don't claim that. Um, I guess I do believe, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a proponent of free trade. I, I'm a believer that globalization on, on balance is a good thing. It doesn't mean it doesn't cause um, dislocations and difficulties and doesn't raise a number of issues we have to, to grapple with. But uh, I do think, I mean, look, living standards in India are far better than they were 30 years ago. Same thing in China. I mean, these are, these are prosperous, uh, I mean, on aggregate, they're much more prosperous than they were. And it doesn't mean it's shared equally. But I, I do think that, I mean, if you look at just the, the, the creation of manufacturing jobs, you know, the development of sectors that just were not, um, I can't say they didn't exist, but they, they, they were not sort of such an important part of, of, of the world economy before, I do think that's good. And, and I think, I mean, yeah. The, there, we haven't even talked about Africa. I mean, there is an uneven you know, spread of knowledge and, and innovation. Um, you know, Africa has really, sadly, has not really participated in a significant way in this sort of whole global academic scene that I've talked about. We'd like to, and there's a lot going on there with efforts to improve higher education. Distance learning may, uh, may be something that could really be helpful in Africa in, in particular. But, yeah, the fact that knowledge can, can be shared easily, that it's not finite, uh, that um, you know, whether it's sort of in basic science or practical innovations, you know, the, the product development, uh, you know, those I think I think will over time spread spread benefits. But the, I, I wouldn't suggest they're going to be spread equally. Um, I, I think that we have to view it as an incremental process. Yes. Go to the back afterwards. For the lecture, um, I think just. Just to follow up uh, the previous comment with a more, I guess, illustrative example. Um, so there's a lot of uh, partnerships between uh, the US and um, developing countries in terms of uh, science. So they fund different grants, they give different grants to developing countries, you know, just for researchers, you know, transfer of whatever knowledge and um, so researchers from developing countries could go to the US and just do research. And if in case um, they develop something or they come up with uh, you know, an innovation, it will be then patented under the US. So I guess that is the biggest fear of you know, 
all the IP and yeah. Yeah. partnerships, I guess. I think that's very legitimate to raise, and actually, you know, there's this, uh, there's this great French expression, pensée d'escalier, which is the thoughts you have on the stairway after you've talked to somebody and you think of all the things you should have said. And I, I actually wish I had devoted more space in the book to this question of you know, patents and intellectual property. Uh, it is a very, very practically speaking, important. I mean, I think that basic science, you know, is, is, is very hard contained within national borders. You know, patents, I mean, I think there again, I think that it, they, they will, you know, technology and, and products do spread, but, you know, there, there are concerns, and it actually can go the other way as well, which is if you're from a country, uh, you know, that has strong patent protections and you're doing research in some place that doesn't, then you can also worry about losing your intellectual property if you have, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you want to, you know, create, create new products. And so I think there's the, the, the danger of exploitation uh, is you know is a, is a problem and the danger of people losing some of the incentives to you know to, to, to do innovative things uh, because of those kinds of you know problems with IP uh, those are those are very legitimate questions. Again, I would say I don't think I mean, you know I still think this is a juggernaut. I don't think that's going to stop all the trends that I'm talking about. I mean I think it's just going to create you know on a sort of case by case basis it's going to create some some issues that have to be grappled with. to look, I, mean, I have to know more about a specific example, I think, to get a better sense of that. So like you right at the back, uh, we could. Hi, I'm Chantal, I'm a qualitative researcher. I'm sorry, come here. Oh. I'm Chantal, I'm a qualitative researcher, but from a commercial agency. Um, my question was about um, any negative spin-offs or possible things to watch out for for universities from countries like New Zealand who are doing quite aggressive or quite intense international student recruitment, or if it's been a kind of a good news story so far? I mean, I'll give you an example of Australia, and I don't know whether, whether I mean, how much of this is a negative. It's a policy change. You know, Australia, student uh, recruiting policies have been, you know, very, of course, they've very aggressively recruited students. You know, they have a significant market share. I mean, the U.S. market share, I, I probably should have mentioned, has shrunk significantly from uh, the latest OECD figures show that we went from 25% uh, I think in the last you know five or ten years to about 19 percent. Although because the pie is getting bigger and there's so many more students, we still are bringing in more students in absolute numbers than we used to. Australia has, uh, I believe, been increasing its market share, and they've tried to use this as a as a vehicle for attracting talent to the country. You know, which I'm all for. However, I think that they've defined uh, the entryways have been pretty broad. So the concern in the last few years had become that people were coming for hairdressing degrees or hairdressing courses, things like that, and that became an avenue for, for immigration, which wasn't perhaps what they had intended by this sort of targeted immigration policy. So they've revisited that. They've made it harder for certain uh, people, certain students to stay, and that means their numbers have dropped a lot. So they're now sort of, they're now kind of grappling with that. So I suppose you could consider that a negative consequence. I mean, it's, it's a an issue there, you know, once again, they're sort of trying to sort it through. I mean, what else? I mean, you know, there are concerns that students may be sort of, you know, deceived into thinking they're going to get something better than they really get. I mean, just your basic sort of consumer protection question. There are ethical issues that come up with recruiters. Um, they're called agents, and 
the states actually, US universities don't use them much, um, which may be one reason why, despite our huge numbers, we're such a big country and our enrollment in post-secondary is so huge that foreign students actually only make up a small proportion overall. Um, it, it, overall, at the, at the graduate level in certain fields, of course, it's very high. But the agents, you know, sometimes you have situations where an agent who is recruiting students uh, is hired sort of on both ends, where a university will hire the agent to go out and bring in, bring in students. But then uh, students and families may hire an agent thinking that they're independent, saying, I want you to find the best place for me. But in fact, they're just going to kind of match them up with the university that's hired them. So you, know, you have concerns about that. There's some efforts uh, in the United States, actually, to create a sort of common set of standards for agents that people would abide by. And if that, if that happens, it might lead to wider use of agents. So those are just a few of the sorts of difficulties. I mean, you know, this is not without difficulty. You know, I mean, there's, and I, I heard yesterday, I, I spoke over um, at the House of Commons at a, at a society, the Henry Jackson Society there, and somebody just pointed out all the practical, practical issues. You know, if you are trying to move between university system systems and, you know, there's not always, uh, you know, the Bologna process in Europe is when the EU has tried to standardize degree sequences, but you have that issue. You just have questions about qualifications not necessarily being recognized. You have problems with fraud. I mean, this has been a big problem with Chinese students, you know, where, um, you know, again, I heard somebody describe the difficulty of having Lots and lots of students whose paper qualifications are perfect, um, but then they sometimes, you know, uh, arrive on campus, and I mean, there there can be outright fraud, or there can be, you know, various difficulties assimilating students. So there there are many bumps in the road. Uh, no no question. Just yeah, I think you almost have the microphone. It's working. Have you seen any separation between maybe? Uh, the reputational side of university education versus the teaching side. So a lot of people, um, especially at an undergraduate level where it's more about teaching than research, uh, might want to go to an institution basically because it looks good in their CV. And then really uh, the quality of the teaching there, it's almost you have to deal with it yourself regardless of how, you know, if yeah. the institution has a strong reputation then the teaching you have to deal with uh, regardless. Have you seen um, any trends maybe where student bodies are literally teaching themselves separately from the institution and then just using the institution as a vehicle to get something good, you know, to get the degree from, if you will? Well, it's funny. There are lots of universities, you know. I mean, again, uh, it just, I've happened to have heard this about Harvard. I mean, it's sort of the, what you always hear is despite the vast expense, you know, students go there and they learn a lot from each other. Um, you know, and people will sometimes say that's where I got my real education, and that's a little bit, um, I mean, it's a, a bit of a flippant comment, but, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right, this is a big problem, when people compete on, on prestige and reputation, and this goes back to what I said to Joe, which is the lack of uh, really sort of sound and, and comparable outcome measures, I think, contributes to that problem. You know, of course, you can quarrel about what those measures should be. As I said, I think that we, that we really ought to try and come up with better teaching measures because, you know, you might want to, what would be the perfect ranking? You know, maybe it would be some combination of Times Higher and Shanghai and throwing two parts a helo, and maybe that would, that would be the right mix. But we're, we don't have that, we don't have the instruments we need yet. You know, in the United States, I mean, that's the big, the big rap on the U.S. news rankings has always been that it's about prestige and that rep, and reputation is too big. And even if you look at something like graduation rates, which sounds like an outcome measure, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very defensible measure to use. But you know, people will say, well, that's really just an indirect measure of, of affluence, because of course we know that well-off students um, are much more likely to graduate 
uh, within a, you know, a certain time frame than, than poor students. Now, to the second part, I mean, about what are students actually doing? You know, I mean, there are some university systems where, you know, the faculty don't show up that much, you know. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I just heard this about, I mean, somebody was talking about Italian universities that have lots of problems. Uh, I don't know whether students are banding together to, to teach themselves or not. But, you know, I do think that one, what one might, may see, um, and this goes back to the sort of distance learning idea, is there may be situations where, perhaps not students teaching themselves, but for various reasons of geography or expense, you may not be able to have the sort of highly trained, you know, sort of PhD researcher, you know, in a seminar or sitting standing in front of a lecture hall like this. You could perhaps have students with, um, you know, say, teaching assistants. You know, what we have in the United States. I'm not sure uh, what you call them here. Um, but, you know, graduate students who post postgraduates, I guess you'd say, who are, sure, who are yeah, who are helping who are helping teach, and that's sort of a way of, you know, trying to get people some more engagement with the, with the material that they may not be able to get from the professor, but it's also, of course, less, less expensive. And there are places in the United States that are trying to do this in terms of just improving the productivity and efficiency of our system, where you might have greater use of technology if you have a very large course, um, an introductory you know, class in some subject, you know, you can perhaps have smaller classes if they're taught by sort of graduate fellows with input from the professor, and if you make greater use of technology in a thoughtful way. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of directions you could go with that, with that question, but I mean, I certainly think it's a, it's a very valid concern, and I think people are sort of trying to figure that out. Uh, if, yeah, so we'll go there, perhaps then. There's a couple of uh, questions at the front. Take you next, sir. Uh, David Sweener from uh, Canada. Uh, ben, you've been talking uh, about what I think Bill Gates refers to as place universities. Uh, what about the internet? I mean, the experience I've seen of, of students now who will say, well, I'm not going to go to that lecture because there's a much better prof at a different university. I watch it on YouTube. Yeah. Or the readings of this course uh, at you know, some place in Sydney are better than what I can get in Toronto, so I read their materials. I get it on the internet. The internet changes everything. What's it going to be due to, to, to change this process? I'm sorry, I missed the last thing you said. That because the internet changes everything, yeah. how do you see it changing what's, what's going on with, with education? You know, I guess I, I'm slightly conflicted on this because I think that, you know, we saw a sort of internet education bubble in, in, the, in the States about 15, 20 years ago. And everybody said this was going to transform education both in elementary and secondary and in higher ed. And it didn't quite work out. Not, um, there are sort of practical technology issues about the quality of the experience that um, are very important in how successful distance or online education is. Um, there's this whole question of the, the jargon that's used as synchronous versus asynchronous. You know, are you doing it in real time? Are you doing it, say, via email? Simply uh, putting up a lecture on YouTube for 45 minutes. doesn't mean that you have to be in the classroom physically. You have to think about doing things differently. I was out at the University of Southern California last week visiting a very interesting program. It's actually a partnership between this traditional you know, private, not-for-profit university and a for-profit firm that's been started by uh, a guy named John Katzman, who was a very successful entrepreneur with a tutoring firm called Princeton Review that became you know, very successful preparing people for university uh, exams, the SAT and so forth. Um, so he's now working with USC and with their teacher education program. 
And this is like many of the top universities. They have, you know, we have huge demand for teachers. We really desperately need high quality teachers. And yet, some of the top programs only, they're really boutique programs. I think USC graduates 100 teachers a year. It's not very many. Well, they now do 1,200 a year. And the reason is that they have this partnership where they've developed very high quality online materials. And I've looked at it, and you know, it is, it is quite interactive. It's in real time. You know, they, they set it up so that you see the professor, but you also see, let's say you're in, in their fairly small classes, you might see eight students. And you see all their sort of heads up on the screen. You know, people can, you know, they have microphones, they can ask questions, the professor can show a video, they can put up a PowerPoint. Of course, they can communicate, you know, offline by email, they can have sort of class discussions. They can, if you have a class of 20, you can separate them into smaller groups in the way you might if you were walking around in certain kinds of classroom settings. So, I mean, again, I'm not saying that's the be-all and the end-all, but that's just to me that absolutely things can be changed. You can go to scale, you can do things at lower cost. I mean, and paradoxically, they're actually charging these people the same as they, they get they charge for a regular USC thing, and that has to do with the university's rules, but there's no reason that should continue. I mean, it's kind of crazy you know, when you think about it. So, that's going to change things, I think, even domestically within the United States. So you have the for-profits, the University of Phoenix, and Capella's, and Kaplan, you know, which are, which are doing a lot with online. Actually, um, at the University of Sheffield, where I'm going tomorrow, the Kaplan owns a for-profit uh, institution called, I think it's called Sheffield International College, which brings in foreign students, gives them a sort of pathway to what they call a kind of boot camp. And then if they do well, then they can transfer to the University of Sheffield. Well, I believe that's done mostly in, 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 uh, in brick-and-mortar classrooms. I guess I'll find out tomorrow. But... There's no reason that some parts of that couldn't be done online. And then there's a ton of students in, um, in South Korea, but many students studying in Australian universities um, that are doing online. And you know, I think as long as those degrees are, you know, are recognized and as long as they have some value in the marketplace, I think that's going to really um, you know, that's gonna help with the mass access question. To the last two questions, if I, if I could just interject, I, mean, I, I think it's a very interesting intuition because, at the moment, if, you, if you're a professor, you're an employee of a university and you benefit from all the fixed sunk costs. So the university provides a library, it provides laboratories. But if you're if you're a non-laboratory academic, and Google wins its court case to digitise all books, you know, I wonder if it'd be possible for we just won a Nobel Prize in economics last week at the school. Whether, whether you could imagine in future, say, 20 Nobel Prize-winning economists just transacting directly with students because you can access now PDFs easily online. If books are digitized too, you could be video conferencing technologies. I mean, I, I agree with you that a you 45-minute know, lecture on YouTube is a deadly experience for students, but you know, I just wonder if we're, that there might be a new way of thinking about individuals contracting directly with students, which would really undermine the business model of some. Universities. Well, MIT already, you know, has its open courseware project where they've put all their courses online. Now, it was sort of hailed as revolutionary. I, I do like it. I mean, it's very, again, it's a very, it's a, the idea of spreading knowledge, you know, on, online. But having said that, you know, the, the actual way in which they've really, the depth of each course is, is really variable. I think in some cases it's really not much more than the syllabus. In others, they really do have, you know, some sort of, some video. I'm not sure how interactive it is because they're not really offering to, to like, give you an MIT degree. They're just saying, here it is, you know, ha have at it. Yeah. A good one to look at is Michael Sandel's course on the, the Harvard website, which is a televised introduction to philosophy course. And we, we would hope to do something similar with what we call a new course here, LSE 100. But uh, I'll take two last questions. So there's a gentleman here and then a uh, gentleman there. It doesn't really matter which order. Gentleman. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Rosman from Malaysia. Um, 
this Shanghai Jiao Tong and this Time Higher Education Supplement, they have made the world university uh, quality education quantifiable. Uh, now we can really measure how good the university is. Now, one of those the spin-offs of that is you have the migration of students coming to those institutions, and you just said just now, in the states, about 60% of the postgraduate places are taken up by foreigners. Now, obviously, uh, for the locals, the Americans, uh, they are under extreme pressure. Either the institutions have expanded the number of places for postgraduates, or the Americans have been deprived of education in the tertiary level. That scenario in the U.S. could, could be happening elsewhere in the world. Now, the thing is that uh, because of open, uh, over-dependency of foreign students to, to lead the research in the university, now there may come a point in time when this, as you see just now, the brain circulation, the students may go back and serve their country. Yeah. And it could be that they could have a bubble may burst. Yep. The, uh, there can be a void at a particular time that the universities may have very few locals doing those cutting edge research. Now, do you see this as a threat to the nation building of a particular country? And do you see this thing you know, I mean, uh, uh, turning out into a, a very big situation where it is, there's no stopping to that? Well, do I understand Thank you. correctly that you're suggesting that, for example, in the United States, as other countries develop better universities, some of the students who might once have come to us will instead go to other places and that we might then face a shortage? Is that, is that, did I understand that correctly? Yes, when, when, when they go back. And they, yeah. I mean, US, I mean the, the country is so dependent on these foreign students. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, yes. but I, I think that's, you know, again, it's, it's a marketplace and there's circulation, but I think that's actually very healthy. If there are going to be better universities back, back home or if people just travel around, I think if, you know, if you believe that, I mean, again, look at the access we have, look at the number of students we have now, um, you know, in, in, all, in, in many countries around the world, uh, I think that there, there's a need for, you know, more, more educated people. So I would hope, I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly there could be problems in the short term. You know, if we, a lot of people in America, you're sort of, you know, they're very concerned about our, our elementary and secondary system because we don't, um, we don't produce, produce enough really highly qualified students. And paradoxically, we have these great universities, but we don't have enough students who are really have the, the, the background in science and technology, the so-called STEM subjects. We worry about that a lot. Um, but again, I don't think it's either or. I mean, I think that it's fine that we bring in a lot of talented students. We should also be doing our best to improve our own education system. And you know, if, if more students go home to China to work in these rising universities, then we'll, perhaps we'll find students from different countries to substitute for them, or perhaps we'll, you know, we'll, uh, we'll train more of our own students. I mean, I think it all remains to be seen. Last question, gentlemen. Yes, I also have a question about the uh, higher education being a private good or moving towards a more private good. And I think it's a, it's a big discussion in a lot of countries, from my country as well, the Netherlands. And I do see a paradox there with the being a private good with higher fees for students. And yeah, that, that's happening everywhere. But on the other hand, a very large public interest as well for the knowledge-based economy. And for me, it's not clear uh, what this, what's the best strategy to reach this knowledge-based economy because for, for an economy to miss out even one student who decides not to pursue uh, a higher education degree, it's losing out potential human capital, but also in tax revenue over a lifetime, it's, it's a major loss. 
So it's it's a it's a hard game also here with the spending cuts and like I said in my country they're doing the same. It's hard to push it all away to a more privatized system where you don't know if that's the best solution for the society and for the knowledge or for the human capital in the long run. I mean look I think it's a fair point. I don't know that there's any magic balance. It's like sort of so many, you know, the, the great questions of social science and of life, you know, it depends, you know. Different, different, uh, different countries will have a different appetite for different, different levels of government involvement. You, know, you can't. I don't. I wouldn't say. Well, it should be 50-50. I think that there is a there is a government interest in um, in human capital, as we've as we've discussed. I mean, in a country like um, the United States, I mean, the federal government puts in a lot of money in universities. I mean, funding research, funding student grants, subsidizing student loans. I mean, that in turn can create some problems because there's an argument that the tuition spiral in many institutions uh, comes from the fact that there's a ready supply of federal funding. So government funding by itself, I don't think, uh, solves everything. And I would also note that, you know, in this country, I mean, as I understand the proposals that are on the table from the, the Brown Report, um, these aren't, uh, we talked about this earlier, you know, the, the, some of the Russell Group uh, institutions are concerned that they actually can't raise uh, fees as high as they'd like because there are levies that would be, that would be um, put on fees above a certain level. So that's not really, I mean, that's not a kind of crazy Wild West free market system. It's a, it's a regulated system. And, you know, I think ultimately, you know, I think my sense is that you, you need to have some of each. But I, I don't think it's unreasonable, uh, given the kinds of economic returns to an individual, uh, that people should shoulder some portion of the responsibility. And I think you have actually here this income contingent loan repayment system is in many ways very progressive. I mean, it's not something that we, we don't have it in the same, nearly to the same extent in the States. And I think it does allow people to get into the system in a much lower risk fashion. In a lot of ways, they're not taking on the kind of debt that we worry about, where no matter what your income, you know, you're going to have to start paying back. Um, I can't resist, if I may, just throwing in one thing. Since I'm at LSE, and we've talked about the, you know, the tendency to talk only about science and technology in this global marketplace, I will just say that there is a real interest in the sort of Western humanistic tradition and the social sciences, liberal arts, um, in countries in Asia. We tend to admire their, their sort of prowess in science and technology and how, how well they're doing and we worry about them. But many of those places want to teach people how to think. And they look at the United States, for example, and they're trying to figure out what's the secret sauce that we have. You know, how are we so entrepreneurial, innovative? And I think many of them attribute it, uh, at least in some part, to an education system, uh, well, in the humanities and social sciences and also in the sciences, where you're encouraged to question authority, to be an analytical, not just to, to memorize things. And so I think that um, you know, social sciences certainly have, a, have, a, have an important role to play in this globalized uh, academy. I hope so. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, again, I'll say that I, mean, I, I strongly sort of recommend this book. Ben recommended himself by talking to it tonight. So he, if you want to uh, purchase it, uh, it's available outside afterwards and Ben will be signing. I'd just like to end by you know, thanking LSE Events and our stewards uh, for putting on a good uh, event as always. Thanks to the audience. Some very interesting questions, I thought, uh, tonight. And then, most of all, Ben, thanks to you for coming to talk to us at LSE. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.